Okay, um, welcome everybody. Shall we get started? My name is uh, Dirk Schoenmaker, and I will uh, chair and moderate uh, the panel uh, this afternoon. And all of you, of course, know that regulation applies to, uh, to banking, but not many people knew that competition policy is also applying to banking. We found out uh, during the crisis, but Javier is one of the few who knew that already a long time before, uh, that uh, competition policy is also applying to banking, like any other sector. But if you talk to regulators and bankers, they always think they are special, so uh, for us it is different. I think we will find out today uh, that banking is different, but also subject to these rules. So we are extremely happy uh, to host uh, Javier Fifes, uh, which you know for a very long time, uh, who's really a specialist in uh, competition and regulation of banking, so he knows a lot about it. So um, in putting uh, his experience together in his new book, we're looking forward to your presentation. We have an excellent panel because you can look at very different angles uh, to, uh, to this issue. Uh, from the policy side, we have uh, two speakers, Matthias de Watripan from the supervisory side, not only at the National Bank of Belgium, but also at the supervisory board of the ECB, keeping an eye on uh, the well-being uh, of our banks, where we have our deposits. And then Gertjan Koopman, who's in the hot seat at the DG competition, uh, which for many people was new. The DG competition has really a lot to say on state aid to banks. We now know it all, but it was a surprise for many uh, during the crisis. But we cannot discuss banking without the uh, sector also present. So I'm really pleased from Societe Generale that Michala is also present. So also to have the view from the sector, um, how they experience competition, and how they look at the issues. Without much ado, I would really like to start. Um, then we have 25 minutes uh, presentation three times 10 minutes uh, discussion, and then we have half an hour left uh, for a discussion from uh, questions from the floor. And Gadjan has to leave a little bit early at a quarter past two, but then we will continue with the uh, discussion. Javier, the word is to you. Thank you very much. So let me just talk from here. I prefer to talk standing, so let's see if this works. Uh, hmm. Okay. Do I have to do something? The point there. Point there? Yeah. No. Doesn't like it? Yeah. No. Ah, okay. I have to walk. Okay. No, no. The, just point no? to that. There is the. If you point that direction. Exactly in that yeah. direction? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's becoming too complicated. Okay. Uh, so, um, so this is the, um, uh, the book I'm going to present uh, today. So, first, uh, let me thank uh, Bruegel for having this presentation. I'm very pleased to be uh, here. Um, so uh, this is the cover of the book. So you see at the cover there is this uh, big peak where uh, kids put the money and then the small, uh, the small peaks. Um, for those of you that worry that the big peak weighs more than the small uh, peaks, the, uh, in the counter cover, so in the back cover that Matthias is looking at, it's balanced there. Um, okay, the... <laughs> oh, okay, it works. The, the, uh, uh, the, the basic question uh, that this uh, book addresses in a very general uh, sense is whether we can have both competition and stability in banking. So in other sectors, maybe this question uh, would be superfluous, but in banking, uh, is not. 
the approach that the book takes is basically takes the learning from two disciplines uh, in economics, industrial organization and financial intermediation, and basically uh, put them together. So the treatment is non-technical, but I look both in the book at the theory, uh, what, are, what the theory says, uh, the empirics, what do we know, and then also the institutional detail and policy, uh, mostly US and Europe, but also uh, the BRICS and some of the uh, uh, emerging uh, markets. Okay, so uh, as a reminder, <clears throat> let me just start uh, with this uh, graph from um, Reinhard and Rogoff, which depicts the, um, uh, some of the crises uh, that we have had uh, in the last century. Um, as you see, there are quite a few. Uh, here there is a, a segment with basically uh, no crisis, which is uh, post-depression uh, in, the, in the 50s and 60s, where the sector was very much uh, regulator, uh, regulated. Uh, here there is the banking panic in 1907, and then we start here with the last, our last uh, crisis. Most of these crises, in fact, um, have been, uh, I am not, um, don't know if to say provoked, but definitely uh, have been linked uh, to some aspects of shadow banks. So in fact here they were, we had investment trusts, these were the shadow banks of the time, that through some market operations and there was an attempt to corner the copper market that destabilized these investment trusts and then this destabilized the banking system. Those guys were not part of the clearing house, they were not, uh, par, uh, they were not part of peer monitoring, that at that time the peer monitoring was done by J.P. Morgan, in fact, himself. Um, and then, uh, so they, they took uh, much more uh, risk, okay? So here we had uh, the liberalization with the uh, uh, mutual funds being able, uh, money market mutual funds being able to remunerate deposits. These destabilized banks had to be liberalized. Uh, savings and loans were liberalized, but without uh, furthering the prudential constraints and we started a period of crisis, uh, and then uh, we come to the, uh, to the present one. Okay, so let me just skip this one. Well, obviously, uh, one question that we can pose is whether we will uh, ever learn, okay? Because there are cycles of, uh, definitely of crisis, regulatory failure. Uh, it seems that the regulation cannot cope uh, with financial innovation, cannot cope with uh, new types of shadow banks that pop up here and there uh, recurrently in the, um, uh, in, in, in the different crisis uh, episodes. Uh, in the post-depression, uh, we had um, Glass-Steagall, separation of investment banks and commercial banks. Uh, we had regulation queue uh, on rates. We had deposit insurance, okay? Then some of these things uh, uh, were repealed. So this gave a period of stability, but also with lots of inefficiencies uh, because the system was extremely uh, regulated. Okay, uh, so as I said, uh, banking used to be one of the most regulated sectors in the economy. Maybe it will be again, but let's uh, say it used to be. Competition was thought to be detrimental to stability uh, since the Great uh, Depression. And until relatively recently, authorities uh, basically were complacent with that. And competition policy was not applied to the sector or was not applied fully to the sector. Uh, in fact, um, if we move uh, more to the recent past, 
Uh, then uh, liberalization was introduced, for example, in, uh, in the 70s. The idea was that competition was good for banking as in any other uh, sector. It was a move towards less specialization, lifting of geographical barriers, both in the US and Europe, and a general increase in market integration and competition. Competition policy then was taken seriously in the banking sector. Uh, in the US, starting from the 60s, in the uh, European Union started to, to be applied uh, fully later, maybe in the 80s. And, well, the idea that competition was good for stability uh, also uh, gains ground, despite the fact that competition has a bearing on the perceived failures uh, of associated to banking, be it excessive risk-taking, credit over-expansion, for example, in, in real estate, or bank misconduct, as the, the cartel uh, cases, as LIBOR, uh, make, uh, make clear. Uh, then came the crisis, and with the crisis... Uh, which is systemic, uh, post Lehman Brothers. Um, competition concerns are basically set aside. There is a massive bailout despite uh, some distortions in competition. Um, for example, in the, in the UK, we had this merger of HBOs and Lloyds uh, being authorized uh, against uh, the opinion of the Competition Authority, the Office of First uh, of Fair Trade. Uh, other mergers which were similar had been uh, blocked uh, before. In the U.S., many mergers were allowed, and basically the Department of Justice mm, did not put any objection or uh, any, deep, uh, any deep analysis. Okay? So basically, uh, competition policy, in fact, was frozen, uh, basically, in, in good part. Um, one of the reasons is that it's naive to think you know, that banking is like any other sector in regard to competition policy, like supermarkets. Why? Well, because banks are very uh, levered uh, entities, are fragile, and when they fail, they put in trouble the whole economy. Okay, so after the Lehman Brothers uh, weekend, uh, I mean, many authorities understood that if banking stole, the whole world economy uh, would, uh, would stall. Okay, um, what the book uh, tries to uh, address are some questions like those ones here. Is there a significant trade-off between competition and stability? In case there is, whether it can be regulated away, whether it can be overcome uh, through regulation, uh, if it cannot or it cannot uh, be done fully, how regulation and competition policy uh, have uh, to interact? And also, what's the appropriate architecture, for example, uh, of the regulatory institutions to implement uh, optimal policies. So now let me just, uh, in the interest of time, uh, go or not dwell into uh, some of the trends in banking. So just basically uh, say that the uh, banks have become, uh, and the system has become more concentrated. Um, in the US, concentration has basically stabilized after the crisis. In Europe, um, continues um, to increase. Um, and the, the consequences uh, in both places are different because in the U.S., in fact, uh, there is more, much more of a single market than in Europe. For example, in Europe, still uh, retail banking is quite segmented and they are national champions in every, uh, in every country. Okay, so let me go back to the, to the, basic, uh, to the basic issue, uh, which is uh, the issue of competition and stability. Um, what's the uh, framework of analysis, the frame of mind, uh, to, uh, to understand this issue uh, from an economic point of view is whether uh, the private and social objectives are aligned. Okay? And when they are not aligned, typically it's because of four reasons. One is externalities, like, for example, the damage that 
banks may do when they uh, go down to other banks and to the economy. <coughs> Asymmetric information, no, like in contracting. Uh, many, uh, when you contract your, uh, your mortgage or your financial products in the bank, uh, typically the banker knows uh, much more than you, for example. Market power, which is directly related to competition policy, and behavioral biases. <clears throat> and the behavioral biases we have seen in the crisis that may be quite important. So this over-optimism, this tendency of people uh, to think that they will be able to repay a mortgage that if certain conditions change a little bit, there is no way you can repay. Okay, so this has happened in Spain, in Ireland, uh, in the US. What's an idea which I think it's important to understand uh, uh, the issue that we are uh, talking about? Uh, the idea is um, uh, basically the principle uh, that in economics we call a principle of second best analysis, which is the following, is that uh, in a situation in which there are different market failures, if you try to advance and fix a little bit one, you may end up worse. You may, you need not, but you may end up worse. So in fact, we are sure that by uh, insisting on more competition will improve social welfare only if we can control the other sources of market failure, because otherwise there are interactions which may, uh, uh, may decrease uh, welfare. Uh, one example, for example, is that when there are behavioral biases, there are now many model, models, experiments, and evidence that tell you that an increasing competition uh, when a segment of uh, depositors, of clients, of consumers are subject to uh, behavioral biases, an increasing competition may hurt this segment, for example. Um, what else may happen, or what else may go wrong? What may happen is that an increasing competition increases fragility uh, in the banking sector by exacerbating the coordination problems uh, that depositors and investors uh, face when, uh, when investing in a bank, basically the co-movement of the actions of investors, and this uh, is a problem because of the externalities of failure of those institutions. Or, or also, it may uh, increase the incentives to take risks and raise failure probabilities, and this goes uh, basically because of asymmetric information. Uh, the reason why uh, institutions, um, banking institutions may have an incentive to take more risk is that there is limited liability, that's to say that in, on the upside, uh, they take the gains, and then the, uh, the downside, uh, it's, uh, it's limited. And also, there is moral hazard, because in the, on the asset side, the assets are quite opaque on what, uh, on, on what the institutions uh, invest. This may be exacerbated by insurance uh, mechanisms. And also, in modern banking, there is uh, a capacity, because of its connection to the market, uh, to take risks more quickly. Okay, so the times uh, where uh, the banker looked in the eye uh, of the client asking for a loan and then only would give uh, the loan if uh, the officer would trust the client are gone, okay, or seem to have been gone, right? So now, now there is a, a mechanism of ticks and a, a computer, no, that a program that will tell uh, whether you deserve uh, the loan uh, or not. Okay, so we've gone from soft information to hard information. So hard information is codifiable, and then we can take much more, uh, the institutions can take more risk uh, and more uh, quickly. Then more intense competition may aggravate the excessive risk-taking uh, problem because it aggravates asymmetric information problems, and it may um, uh, reduce what's called the charter value of, uh, of the bank. What is that? It's basically the value of the bank as an ongoing concern. 
by reducing what the bank uh, is worth, then if a bank has uh, less to lose, it may have in, an incentive to take more risk to see uh, whether it will get out uh, of, this, uh, of this situation. Uh, finally, let me just uh, make, a, I think, a, a point which is important also in competitive markets uh, when the market expands. Uh, in the situation that we were uh, in the US, Ireland, Spain, and other places where there was a real estate boom, many new borrowers came to market. And then new, these uh, new borrowers were, uh, uh, had unknown characteristics, basically. And basically, uh, on those situations, what happens is that banks may have the incentive to move from a situation in which they discriminate among borrowers to another situation where basically everyone is in. Okay, so there are incentives to overexpand. And this, at the, at the root of this, there is an asymmetric information problem, and this is what, in fact, uh, uh, happened, also helped by competitive uh, uh, pressure. Helped also by the behavioral bias of consumers towards overborrowing, and helped also by a loose monetary policy of very low uh, rates. Okay. So let me summarize briefly uh, the, um, <clears throat> the evidence, as I read, on the relationship between competition uh, and stability uh, in banking. Uh, so uh, the first point is that I think we have quite a bit of evidence that liberalization uh, without adequate regulation leads to crisis. This is exactly what happened in the savings and loans crisis that was liberalized, but uh, prudential requirements and supervision requirements, supervisory requirements were not updated, and the end result uh, of that uh, was this crisis. This also happened in the liberalization and deregulation in, in the current uh, crisis. So uh, supervision and regulation did not keep up uh, with the market uh, development. So that's one point. Uh, the second point is that there is evidence that an intermediate degree of competition uh, tends to be good uh, for financial stability. This is still is relatively uh, not very strong evidence because here there are many things uh, that they are moving, but this is my reading uh, of, the, of the literature uh, where neither uh, monopoly situations nor extremely, uh, extreme rivalry situ uh, situations are good uh, for stability. Um, Another uh, point where competition sometimes may be bad for stability is when competition for deposits destabilizes a system. And so let me just give uh, an example here. Uh, so if you have weak banks that because they are weak, uh, they overbid for their deposits to try to uh, attract uh, deposits, then the sound banks have to respond by also overbidding for deposits. And then this presents a systemic problem. Okay. And then, uh, in fact, some uh, central bank, like the Bank of Spain or uh, uh, in Portugal, at some point limited or gave indications uh, to limit the rates paid uh, by deposits precisely to avoid this perverse effect of competition for deposits on systemic uh, stability. Okay. Uh, another point I would like uh, to make is the following. I have argued uh, for the existence of this competition and stability uh, trade-off. The reason that it remains is that regulation, we cannot expect it to be perfect. What we can uh, expect and uh, strive for is for regulation to improve the trade-off, the competition stability trade-off, 
but if the past is any predictor of the future, uh, we will not manage to completely eliminate all the other market failures. So therefore, the trade-off uh, uh, possibly uh, will remain. But still, this does not mean that we don't have to push for better regulation that may allow for more competitive uh, uh, banking and more stable banking. But also to achieve this, what we need uh, is for a, uh, an approach to prudential regulation and to competition policy, which is more holistic. That's to say that it integrates the different instruments and thinks through the effects of the different instruments on both um, stability and competition. For example, um, the way uh, things are thought nowadays, um, the regulators tend to think about capital requirements, liquidity requirements, disclosure requirements, potential liberalization separately. And once uh, we take into account the interactions, then we may have to revise some of these uh, tools. For uh, the example of the savings and loans uh, was clear. Uh, once liberalized, once the savings and loans were liberalized, we needed uh, to, uh, the, the regulator should have thought, ah, now I have to increase uh, the solvency requirement and I have to be more careful in the supervision. Or for example, when uh, disclosure, in, Disclosure requirements are imposed, very strong disclosure requirements are imposed, like now, for example, the Financial Stability Board is thinking about shadow banking institutions, thinking that they will limit runs. In fact, this, uh, the opposite may happen. Uh, these very potent pu public signals, when they uh, go down quickly, they may be the rallying point for a run. What do you need then? Then you need higher liquidity requirements to provide those institutions with buffers against uh, this possibility. So this is an idea of kind of a more holistic view uh, of, uh, of regulation. What does this imply? So then uh, what it implies is that um, prudential regulation and competition policy have to be coordinated. Uh, one example was this capping of rates of deposit rates to limit systemic risk, which I already uh, mentioned. Another example is that uh, they both have to take into account in, um, in merger resolution uh, cases in crisis the long-term competitive structure of the system. So it's not a good idea to merge entities without thinking that this will stay for a long time once the uh, stability problem has been solved. Okay, so and then this may generate a competition pro problem uh, down the road. And then finally, another point which I think is also important for Europe and for the European Commission uh, in particular, uh, is that competition policy uh, may be used, and in fact, uh, it has had some effect, I would say, as a credible tool to check to build uh, too big to fail. Uh, because uh, if institutions uh, know that by taking uh, a lot of risk, uh, then if they fail and have to be uh, uh, helped, then they will, some restructuring will be imposed so that competition is not distorted with the sound institution. So this has good, uh, good incentive effect. This, um, uh, there is a very big divergence between the US and Europe on that. Uh, in the US, this is not an issue, so uh, competition policy has no say on a state aid. Okay, in fact, uh, too big to fail is not at all an antitrust uh, problem in this sense. Uh, in Europe, we have done differently. Now, obviously, we have a single resolution authority, and now we have to think through, uh, okay, uh, we have to think through carefully the coordination between the single resolution authority and the competition uh, and the competition authority, okay? Maybe with a memorandum of understanding or, or, or something like that, so to, to bring the needed uh, cooperation. Okay, and so just to end, uh, let me um, say a few words about 
um, the architecture of uh, regulatory uh, institutions. Uh, so I have advocated uh, for the need to coordinate uh, competition policy and regulation and supervision. Uh, this does not mean, however, uh, that the policy should be enforced by the same agency. So I think that separate agencies for competition policy and prudential uh, oversight with well-defined missions is what's called for because this uh, keeps the agencies accountable and generates uh, incentives to acquire, the proper incentives to acquire uh, information. Uh, there is an issue, uh, though, which I think is quite important uh, for continental Europe, which I think we are doing wrong, uh, basically, uh, which is the following, and I think in this case the UK uh, does it uh, right with the Financial Conduct Authority. Uh, in the new system in the Financial Conduct Authority, consumer protection is put under the wing of the FCA, uh, which is uh, the Conduct and Competition Authority and out of the prudential, uh, so it's, it's not an issue, it has nothing to do with the, prudential, uh, with the prudential authority. I think this is good because basically the aim of consumer protection is the same aim as competition policy, which is the welfare of the consumer. So I think the incentives are absolutely well aligned. Uh, instead, in continental Europe, typically we have, we rather have in most instances, consumer protection with the prudential authority. And I think this generates a conflict of interest uh, which uh, need not uh, be good. I think it will be much more effective consumer protection if it is with the competition uh, uh, authority. Could be also independent, like in the US, although we'll see whether the Financial Consumer Protection Bureau survives the new developments uh, in the US. I would conjecture it ha will have a difficult life, maybe, but, uh, but who knows, who knows. Uh, okay, so uh, with this, I think, um, I, uh, I end, and I just would like to, uh, uh, to say that, uh, and by saying that I, I have uh, stated that there is a, uh, a trade-off between competition and stability, but that there is a lot of room, basically, for regulation to try to improve this trade-off and to try to uh, have a more competitive banking uh, and more stable and competitive banking at the same time. So we can work a lot on relaxing the trade-off, and we have a lot of work to do. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for first for being in time, and second, uh, I think what really uh, what comes out of this is that you need an integrated view uh, because you have different regulation, competition, you have different things. You cannot look at that piecemeal. And I liked at the end that you were promoting the Twin Peaks model but then with competition more on the conduct side and with the prudential side to make it really work like in the UK. But let's go to Matthias for, um, for discussion from the supervisory side. Yes, so uh, thank you very much. Um, I guess slides will arrive at some point. Um, so, well, thanks a lot already <laughs> for the invitation, <laughs> uh, for the ability there to thank you to discuss uh, to discuss this book uh, by uh, by Xavier, uh, which is extremely nice. I recommend that you all buy it. Uh, I think Xavier was the perfect person uh, to, uh, and this is not collusion, by the way. Uh, I think Xavier was the perfect person to write this book, being an expert in both. Uh, banking regulation and competition policy. Uh, it also provides uh, an up-to-date assessment <laughs> of theory and evidence in, these bo in both these fields. And uh, I think that uh, it's uh, really illuminating. It shows the extent to which banking is special, 
and the extent to which it is not. And I fully agree with uh, his general conclusion that it's a good idea to implement competition policy in the banking sector, but with appropriate coordination with regulation. Now, as the book shows, this is quite a challenging task, and we haven't managed to converge on the, the right way to do it after almost a century of trying uh, since, the, uh, since the Great Depression. Um, since I only have 10 minutes, let me focus on uh, uh, one particular topic here based on my uh, experience as a supervisor, uh, and it's about uh, how do we restore health to a euro area banking sector, which is not in great shape. Huh? So uh, uh, market to book value on average is, let's say, 60%. So, you know, uh, so we are not in a, some progress has been made since 2008, but uh, we still have quite some excess capacity. Uh, and therefore, we have low profitability. Low profitability, which is moreover uh, made worse in a sense by uh, the current uh, low nominal growth, low interest rate environment, the challenge of digitalization, all these kind of things. Uh, in particular, we have quite a high level of non-performing loans uh, on the books of banks in a number of countries. Um, so this is not necessarily excessive risk-taking. It is forbearance, the fact that you keep, uh, you keep uh, refinancing loans that are not doing great because you prefer not to have to uh, take provisions and uh, so hurting your sol solvency. So the book says quite correctly that in fact more competition and therefore the risk of uh, lower profit should require more capital through regulation to guard against potentially adverse uh, risk-taking <laughs> incentives. This is quite right. Now let us face it, it is very complicated. It's much easier to be very tough with banks that are in good shape than with banks that are in bad shape because they will always complain you cannot do that to us. Now uh, this will mean that the lending to the real economy will go down the drain and it's awful and it's very easy to, uh, to convince politicians that indeed uh, in times of a weak banking sector, you have to be nice to the banks, which I think is very dangerous in the long run, but uh, it's a fact of life. Uh, and of course, the banks have, uh, uh, they are right to say that, you know, equity is costly. We are not in a modigliani Miller world. Uh, today, uh, independent cost of equity estimates for banking range between 8 and 10%, and of course, it's much easier, as you know, to get funding through deposits at almost zero, zero rates. So this is the problem that uh, we are faced with. And uh, in our supervisory world, micro macro, uh, everybody's saying, well, we really need to have a fast enough adjustment of the sector to get rid of the excess capacity. And then the key question is, with or without public money? In our world, competition policy is state aid control. I mean, this is the key thing that uh, we are discussing uh, at length. Now, some comments about uh, the, uh, the role, and I'm in favor, of course, of state aid control, let me say it right away, but we should also not forget that the stylized facts on the cost of bailouts following banking crisis are very clear. Uh, first of all, the biggest cost, fiscal cost, is uh, low growth. 
much more than bailouts, number one. That procrastination is really costly. Japan or the US SNL is a good example of that. And that swift bailout intervention may in fact pay for taxpayers fully. And the two examples that everybody's always talking about are Sweden, early 90s, with a, so a big bailout and then they got repaid, and the US after Lehman. Uh, this uh, paid for itself, in fact. So there is definitely a trade-off between current and future crisis. Fighting moral hazard is, of course, good. We all agree on that. But, and so getting around too big to fail is important, but it is not worth delaying restructuring, especially uh, that there is evidence on the growth impact of these uh, fast restructuring. So in Europe, as Javier said, uh, we have the specificity that we have state aid control, and there are good reasons for that. By the way, there are two justifications for state aid control in general. One which I think is straightforward, externalities across member states, obviously. And second, call it paternalism. By the way, it's, let's say, enlightened paternalism in the sense uh, that the member state agreed that Europe should protect national taxpayers against capture of national government by special interest. I think this is a more delicate thing, especially in times of Euroscepticism, and I think there the subsidiarity principle should be uh, kept in mind. And I think that's important because financial stability concerns are important. And there, in terms of state aid control, let me, for banking, distinguish three phases. Phase one, immediately after the crisis, I think there, DG competition was really important to uh, act. We were completely unprepared for the crisis. The regulation was a mess. And uh, DG competition was the closest thing there was to a resolution authority. And uh, you know, as a Belgian, for example, all the uh, conditionality that was imposed on the bailouts, uh, for example, of a bank like KBC, uh, really helped the taxpayer get its money back. Uh, and I think there it was really good. Now, let us face it. Uh, it was uh, a balancing act between financial stability concern, banking is special, and punishing the outliers, which I think was quite right. Then we gradually got out of the crisis, and then came the 2013 state aid guidelines, uh, which understandably tried to toughen conditionality uh, and making a bailout less costly by introducing some kind of bail-in, equity of course, but also junior claims. I think there are no problem with respect to financial stability, but let's face it, we can come back to the case of these four very small Italian banks that uh, went through this thing. It did create a big political backlash. I'm not sure. A uh, lot of people in Italy, for example, are talking about overreach and the like. There is a question of a de minimis rule like they, they have done, uh, for example, for agreements and things like that, and I think that could be worth looking at. And then the real problem, I think, is not phase two, is phase three, BRD, which is now extremely tough. And I understand you need to try and avoid, avoid the bailout. But we have this rule now that we have, uh, and that's again, that's member states having decided that. Huh? So uh, uh, the, there is this insistence now on 8% bail-in, so losses by 8% of the balance sheet, non-risk weighted, uh, and you go up the priority list possibly all the way up to depositors, uh, in order to have uh, access to the European Resolution Fund or even national public money. And I think there, and let me not go into the detail of that, 
I think the key problem is, would that mean that in order to start bailing out a bank, would you need to bail in corporate deposits? I think that's the thing. I think that is a really dangerous idea for financial stability. And it's so dangerous that nobody there is doing this. <laughs> and therefore, the system currently doesn't work, if I may say so. Uh, and I think that's important to keep in mind, especially because financial instability is really costly. I think the costliest bank failures in the last 10 years in the world was Lehman Brothers with no bailout, but a huge financial instability that followed, and it was called the Great Recession. So it was the worst possible outcome for the, um, for the taxpayer. Uh, and I do think, uh, I would argue that uh, I'm not against this idea of 8% bail-in and the like, but provided we make sure that all the banks have 8% long-term junior claims. And right now, except in Germany, when they change the law to make uh, retroactively senior bank bonds junior to deposits, we are not there yet. And I think we are in a bit of a vacuum, which is quite, uh, quite worrisome, potentially. So I would argue that given the current state of the banking sector, we have to find a way to uh, kind of uh, have a kind of a transition period. It's complicated because it means reopening BRD and the like, but uh, I, I know a lot of people who think this is the thing that would be uh, desirable in the interest of, of Europe. But anyway, I'm trying to stimulate the discussion here. Okay. Thank you, Matthias. Uh, so, Gertjan, uh, uh, a holiday for the banks and maybe a holiday for yourself. So, what do you think? Yeah, I agree with the latter, but I agree with the Sure, the mic is on. Yes, it is. So, um, thank you very much. Uh, first, let me say that I really like uh, Xavier's book, uh, also because as a classicist, I'm a great fan of Aristotle, and what you basically plead for is called in uh, Greek philosophy the uh, aurea mediocritas. Uh, so we need competition, but we don't need too much competition uh, in order not to endanger uh, financial stability. Um, and, I, and, and that is subject conditional on the quality, to put it generally, of regulation. If you think in term of, terms of vent curves, you could move out the, the vent curves uh, uh, and have more competition, more financial stability provide, if, if you improve the quality of your regulation. And I think that's, that's very much the way we think about it in DG competition. Uh, we don't see uh, 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 a trade-off uh, provided we improve the quality uh, of regulation. And uh, that, in effect, is what we have been trying to do in Europe. It's been a massive uh, uh, overhaul of rules in Europe. Uh, I uh, take issue with what uh, Matthias says. I'll come back to that in a second. But I, my, my basic thesis is that we have introduced a paradigm shift in regulation in Europe that should, uh, looking at the analytical work you have done in the book, uh, uh, move the vent curves out and therefore improve uh, the available uh, equilibria. Now, I, I think the point is largely that uh, the, the two channels whereby, in, in your assessment, competition... Uh, could have a negative impact uh, on uh, uh, financial stability are both being addressed through the changes in regulation and through the changes in uh, competition policy. I think the first is where you ba basically say that uh, too much competition, so if you move too far with competition, you, you depress the margins and you in, in, in incentivize excessive risk-taking. Now, of course, I think the biggest uh, change we have seen in the past uh, uh, 10 years, uh, or eight years, if you will, in Europe, is that this no longer comes 
at uh, a zero cost to the banks. That's where the bail-in regime has, has, I think, dramatically dealt with uh, moral hazard. Uh, a lot of academic studies prior to the crisis showed that there was an implicit state guarantee on the banking sector between 1% and 2% of GDP. Uh, that has largely been removed. And whilst uh, the profits uh, were, of course, always privatized, still are privatized now, the losses are uh, also uh, uh, privatized and less socialized uh, than before. So I think that, that channel has been uh, very much uh, addressed. Um, and I think the other point that, that has changed dramatically on the, on the regulation side is that uh, the levels of capital and also the organization of supervision have changed dramatically. Uh, my assessment is that uh, putting supervision, at least in Euro banking uh, uh, land, uh, at a, a, a European level, at a supranational level, will significantly enhance the quality. There's been, in my experience of doing many, many cases, often uh, a lack of uh, recognition by national supervisors of the seriousness of the problem and a real difficulty in taking responsibility. I think if you do case studies of the countries you mention, you will see that very often interventions only started after significant changes in uh, uh, the uh, national supervisory authority. Uh, there's a great capacity uh, of closeness. There's also a great capacity uh, of uh, denial of the seriousness of the situation. And by moving this out, by putting it at the European level, so I'm talking here about the SSM, things have uh, dramatically uh, improved. <laughs> now, what I would also say is that um, the architecture which we have now developed is indeed, and there I would agree with Matthias, fundamenta fundamentally uh, uh, dependent on there being sufficient bailable uh, instruments in banks. So the, the whole discussion about Emeril and TILAC is not, a, is not a, an innocent discussion. If we get this wrong, if this, if this discussion goes wrong, we, 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 we're clearly left with a problem. But if it, if it is handled appropriately, then uh, I, I really believe that uh, an important part uh, of the, the landscape in terms of the absorption uh, capacity of banks to take losses will have been dealt with. And that in combination with the third element, which is the availability at the European level of a resolution authority that will operate a special insolvency regime for banking that is harmonized at the European level, at least largely harmonized, because it is a directive after all the BRD, um, that should also significantly uh, contribute. We're, we're not looking at um, uh, 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 a, 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 a national insolvency uh, uh, law where banks are treated like any other company. We have a, we have a very uh, specific setup created, which also now requires uh, at least uh, requires for all of the banks to have resolution plans that will be prepared beforehand. Which means that you know in this new architecture, to put it in simple terms, you have banks that can absorb losses to a large extent can be resolved, they are resolvable. Many of our banks were not resolvable uh, prior to uh, uh, the crisis. And we have actors that can take these decisions more independently from national uh, uh, interests uh, than was the case uh, before. So it's a very brave new world. It's an untested, untried experiment. We, we need to be honest about this. But uh, it's a development which I believe, based on our own uh, experience in DG competition with uh, more than 130 uh, uh, state aid cases in the crisis covering 30% of the banking uh, sector addresses the main weaknesses in the pre-existing uh, regime. Now, that leaves two questions for me. The first is the transitional question which Matthias put on the table. You know, it, it might be good in the long run, but can we actually get there? Will we not, uh, will, we, will we survive the transition to the new regime? 
And there, I, I frankly, I beg to, to disagree. I think the worst thing we could do is to reopen the architecture at the moment. Because as, an, as, as a microeconomist, what I, what I think is essential in this, uh, in, in this uh, juncture is to ensure that the rules of the game are stable, that people, people's expectation, market agents' expectations are clear and uh, are not disturbed and disrupted by further regulatory change, which incidentally, uh, would take years to come to pass. Uh, uh, changing a directive in Europe means two years of, uh, of change and then uh, implementation. So by the time that you want to get out of the transition, the transition would be starting. No, I think therefore, uh, in the present context, the best is for actors to assume their responsibilities. And that brings me to my last point, again, dr drawing from my own uh, experience. I think the key uh, uh, contribution that competition policy can bring and has been bringing is also to facilitate restructuring and market exit. Um, very often people claim that in Europe we haven't been uh, closing banks or liquidating banks, and, and very often there's a reference to the FDIC in the States as, a, as an example of a much better model. But the reality is if you look at the facts, at the statistics, that under state aid control we've had many, many liquidation or pre-resolution cases before the resolution regime uh, uh, started. So there's been a lot of exit in Europe. And the restructuring cases uh, have been very significant. As I said, about 25% of the assets of, the Europe, of Europe's banking sector prior to the crisis went through restructuring. We have done an empirical assessment of whether these banks uh, were actually uh, reformed in an effective manner in terms of returning to viability, and that's available on our website. And what you can clearly see in these empirical data is that the tough restructuring conditions which we imposed under state aid conditionality have actually worked. These banks, the restructured banks, are actually returning to viability. I mentioned the example of Bankia uh, in casual conversation before the conference, which is now uh, enjoying uh, an ROE of 9% and is, is clearly a very viable bank, but there are many other examples. So I would say that um, it would be, in my view, unwise not to rely on the tried and tested tools that are available today uh, in an environment where there is arguably uh, much more, um, uh, much more uh, 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 stability in the system than there was in, in, in 2008 to 2012, uh, and to apply them. That means, and that's the final thing I would say, when it comes to some of the legacy costs, that these will have to be assumed. Um, and I think there are no miracles. We talk about NPLs, and people would like somehow these NPLs to be resolved in a way that doesn't come at a cost to the banking sector, to the taxpayer, or to uh, bank stakeholders. Well, that solution, of course, is simply not available. The NPLs represent a significant cost. The best that we could do is to recognize these losses, to attribute these losses. And I really do not see why the NPLs that are so prominent in the balance sheets of certain banks not all banks, not in all countries, and in the countries where they are high, not even in all banks. They need to be recognized, the losses need to be attributed, the banks need to be restructured, and those banks that will not be viable post-restructuring need to exit. I don't think there is any evidence uh, that this recipe, which has been applied consistently over the past five or six years, has actually led to any significant impact on financial stability. And the four little banks that went out of business last uh, 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 last year, in 2015, are not an illustration that the BRD, because they were actually resolved under the BRD applying state aid rules, so it was the BRD's uh, burden-sharing requirements that were applied. They're not an illustration of the 
instability that arises from applying the new rules, they're actually a very good illustration of how procrastination and not taking action for many, many years costs a system and costs individual uh, shareholders because these banks have been in special administration for many, many years. So the, the real problem there is that procrastination comes at a cost. Not dealing with the cost makes the cost bigger. And whatever we say in this room, whatever we say in terms of changing the rules, these costs will have to be attributed, absorbed. And I think it would be a serious mistake to somehow try to shift these costs to the public uh, because that would destroy the new equilibrium and the expectations that we have built up over the years to arrive at a new uh, equilibrium. Thank you. What, what I would like for the discussion later on, uh, but that we don't forget the question, because I think Javier put us a uh, prerequisite that we could do things if banks are well capitalized, and the US banks are well capitalized, and then you can apply all competition tools, how we are doing on that front. But let's leave it to the discussion and first go to the market. Michala, for you. Uh, I'll just grab the microphone. Here you are. Your, your, your oh, I have yeah. one, I have yeah. one. Oh, yeah. sorry. Yeah, I completely forgot I had it. So um, I, I think there's a, an awful lot to pick up on here. So it's a little bit hard to, to know what to choose. But I think I'll start with the picture on your front page, which I very much enjoyed. And, and I would say I, I very much enjoyed having the opportunity to study your work as well. I think we're missing a few elements on the picture, if I'm thinking about it from a European angle. Um, I think we need to have some shadows on the picture to symbolize maybe a bit of shadow banking, because I think this is one of the big challenges. And then I think we have to think about banks externally from Europe as well. And in particular, I would, I would, uh, I would say I would include the US banks on the picture. Now, I know your, your picture is not about uh, individual banks, but, but, but it's more abstract. But if, I, I think it's quite important when we're thinking about the, the world not to forget these dimensions to it. And um, I think you make a, a lot of very good points about, about the regulatory environment. And um, you talked about Aristotle's. I'm, I'm more simple. I'm going to talk about Goldilocks on the bears. You know, in markets, we're always very worried about the bears. It's our big fear. So we think about this as, as being the nice equilibrium. And, and I think, what are some of the criteria we want for, for both the competitive and the regulatory environment? Well, we want stability and visibility, which is a point that you highlighted. And um, Unfortunately, I don't think we're there. Uh, we nicknamed it in the sector uh, Basel IV, which we're still discussing. There's still uh, a lot of uncertainty about what the future architecture of Europe will look like. We're still discussing about our capital markets union. We're discussing about Brexit, which of course is not the regulatory environment per se, but I think again, it adds up to a picture where there's a lot of uncertainty about what the future landscape is, is going to be looking like. We touched upon the idea of profitability, and I think this is a, a very important one. So I do a very simple calculation as a macroeconomist. I call it the bank misery index. So it's very, very simple. The lower it is, the more miserable things are. And I just add up, very simply, the short-term rate. I add up five-year, five-year inflation expectations. And then I add up the consensus forecast on growth. Then you can take this and you can plot the relative performance of, of Europe against the US. And you have a very good explanation for the relative performance of, of the bank stocks in, in the two economies. 
So I think this is a, this is a very important point, is that we need to get back to, to economic growth. This is absolutely key. Another thing that I think is very important, and perhaps this is more at the, the micro level in, in some ways, but I also think it's very important that we feel that regulation is safe. Now, we had a little bit of an episode with complex products that we felt were very safe. And if I be a little bit naughty and draw a parallel and say <coughs> complex regulation may look safe, but I think we have to at times challenge whether the complexity is always delivering safety uh, and uh, I hope it is, um, but I think we have to raise that, that question in the discussion. And that ties in very closely as well with a question on, on cost, which I think is important, and, and that's clearly also a, a challenge in the, in the current environment. Now, I touched upon uh, with my idea of the picture about, about other areas, and I think this is hugely important for, for competition and regulation in terms of having a level playing field. Um, when I look around the world today, it's all very small. But you know, we're discussing about bitcoins. Are, are bitcoins a new safe way to save? That makes me feel very scary. Uh, and how do we regulate that? Are we thinking about it? And what are we going to do? Crowdfunding on the internet. That makes me feel a little bit nervous as well. And I think we have to think about these new challenges. Uh, I'm picking up on, on some of the more mediatized ideas. But I think in the shadow system in general, it is something that we need to be thinking very hard about. And then I think, again, you, you make some very good points about the regulatory authorities. But again, I think there's a, a, a trade-off to be had in how many authorities do, do we want to be dealing with uh, and, of course, an efficiency on not having one authority deal with absolutely everything. I think, again, it's, it's a question, and I very much like this picture of the balance uh, of the two things together. So maybe to, to try and, and, and round this up and, and think about it a little bit, obviously, um, what I would like to see, both as a banker and as a macroeconomist, is a single-level playing field in Europe. I would like to see the Capital Markets Union develop and build out. I would like to see, and I very much share with you, stability and clarity in the regulatory environment. I think this is absolutely key. And I think also, if we can advance on these political ideas of the Capital Markets Union, now I can span it out to many other things, the Energy Union and the rest of it. Uh, as a macroeconomist, we did some calculations on growth. And if we do all those things, and please quickly, um, we can actually double trend potential in Europe from the rather miserable level of 1%, which is where I think it is right now, to 2%. And then my banking misery index will catch up to the Americans in quite a miraculous way quite quickly. So I think those things are key. But let's just remind ourselves before we, we sort of, before I round up here, why do we want banks in the first place? You know, we, we talk a lot about the banks. Why do we actually want banks? Well, I mean, it's very simple. We want them as a, as a means to, to safeguard our, our cash, um, savings as well, but I think cash is really the, the first thing. We want a safe means of, of payment. And then, of course, we want the banks to be able to create markets and different instruments. But perhaps most importantly, and this comes back to monetary policy and the effectiveness of monetary policy, is banks in a fractional reserve system is the only place where you actually can create a money multiplier. But if your banking system is not well working, then your money multiplier is not well working, and then your monetary policy is much less effective. Mm -hmm. 
and then you don't get the economic growth. So quite a lot of things to cover there. I've, I've tried to run through things quickly in the interest of time. Um, but I think, uh, I think you, you raised some excellent points. And uh, I'll stop here so that we can have lots of questions and discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you. I would like to use my position as chair to ask the first question and, and also to Javier. I think in the long run, we all agree. So if bank, banks are well capitalized, then good regulation and good uh, competition policy, including state aid rules, we all agree on. But I think what has been put on the table by the first and the third discussion is um, and I can say it a bit easier as academic, uh, uh, we, we, banks are better capitalized, but not enough. We all remember in March 2009, the US did a very tough stress test, and banks had to put capital in. Luckily, the market was open, and uh, since then, properly capitalized US banks are supporting economic growth. In Europe, uh, we have made progress, but still part of the banks are not really highly capitalized, and NPL is only one uh, phenomenon. And how are we getting out of this hole? Huh? We, we need 8 to 10% to return on equity, but uh, we don't get that on the European banks. How are we getting out of this hole uh, of putting the European banking sector in proper health? Javier, what do you think? What, what should we do? I wish I knew, yeah. Um, the, let, let me say something, though. Um, I, I think, and also related to what uh, Matthias was saying, uh, in Europe, I think still we have the original scene of Japan, which is that we have not clean, we did not clean enough and uh, early enough uh, the balance sheet of quite a few banks. And then, uh, forget about lack of capital. So yes, yeah. but uh, the problem is this. Uh, uh, are these non-performing loans which are there and which, as you said, no, drag no, the, uh, the performance of these banks. And in fact, people then, they do not want to in, in invest in, in, in those banks in part because of that. So if they had a clean uh, balance sheet, then people would invest in the banks. Uh, I would say more. So that's one thing. Uh, the other, uh, and in fact, I was in, uh, in London last week uh, discussing this also with uh, BIS officials. Um, uh, it seems that banks have distributed from 2007 to 2014 uh, half of their profits as dividends. Dividends and, uh, no, and other no, uh, share uh, purchases and so on. Uh, obviously, um, part of this could, be, no, could have been, could have been uh, used to increase, uh, to increase capital. Um, the question uh, is that no single bank wants to do that uh, because if a single bank does it, uh, it's uh, kind of uh, admitting that it's kind of weak. No? And so therefore, and there maybe there is a, a room for the supervisor to, uh, no, to kind of uh, say something on, uh, on this. If this, is, uh, if this can be a, a, a partial way out uh, to the to a better uh, capitalization. But I think, uh, uh, again, I think the original scene is a little bit the Japanese, uh, the Japanese but, question. But then, before asking the difficult question of Matthias, uh, whether we can do this on dividend, 
Um, luckily, uh, or could that the ECB is now starting on NPLs to give targets to the banks. Would you wish more that, like, I think if you look at the numbers, you see in Spain and Ireland NPLs coming down, but there we had proper restructuring, a bad asset agency, and a lot of pain, but NPLs are moving down. Do we need that also for Greece, Italy, and Portugal, or is it sufficient the guidance you're giving, or do we really need this kind of bad asset agency to get the thing rolling? Well, I think the, uh, and as you said, we all agree about the steady state. Yeah. The steady state, capital and lending are positively correlated. Yeah. Uh, the evidence is very clear. The better capitalized bank serves the real economy better. And it's all a question of transition. I, I fully agree with all the examples that Gertian gave about uh, the fact that DG Competition has done a very good job in terms of uh, pushing for the restructuring of banks. Uh, I had mentioned KBC was one example, but you know, Bankia is another good example. I think to me, the key thing of all this, it was restructuring with state aid. And today, because of BRD, we are stuck. And as I say, uh, you know, when bailout is out, since January 1st, 2016, uh, and bail-in is not in because we are not ready, of course, if we were ready uh, to bail-in 8%, that would be fine, then denial is the last option left. And I think there's a difference between, for example, Italy and uh, Spain, Ireland, and the like. And I think, and I'm worried about the backlash because People say, oh, you allowed a lot of state aid since 2008, but now Italy is not allowed to have it because Italy had its crisis too late. Now you can say, Italy, uh, you should have cleaned up your sector too quickly, uh, more quickly. And, and I do think, I do fully agree with Gertian. It is, procrastination is very dangerous. Why have they procrastinated? Still, the question is, we are a bit in this situation, and I think it is problematic do you want for growth. Would you like if we get this, uh, do we need a bad asset uh, agency for Italy? I think a lot of people are saying that, that it would be good to indeed uh, have a, a fast uh, uh, cleanup of, it's not just Italy, yeah? there are yeah, a lot yeah, of yeah, countries, yeah, and, and, and I think that is the difference with Spain. With Spain it, it happened, and I yeah. think it's, so I, I think we have to be, uh, to be a bit more, more flexible. Uh, vigorous competition policy, but with some, uh, some flexibility about uh, dealing with the current crisis. And of course, uh, the, by the way, that's the big difference between TLAC and Emerald. Huh? In TLAC, for the, the big bank, you have a, a transition period, and it's, it's well done. I think our politicians in Europe got carried away, and they didn't think enough about transition and the like. As I say, it's member states, huh? so, uh, but I think You'll we have, have to, to get tough. out of this. Then I open up. Just a very quick comment. I, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a fallacy to claim that no state aid is available in the BRD world. I, I think this is not true. And that, that I want to, to clarify. In resolution, there is the fund. Uh, but uh, what we have actually seen so far is that we have had quite a few cases of precautionary recapitalization. There's an exception foreseen in the BRD that allows state aid to be given uh, outside of resolution for cases where banks have uh, little capital, too little capital in an adverse scenario of a stress test, but enough in the longer run. So they're solvent, but they have a, a shortfall in the longer run. And some of the most, well, one of the most discussed cases at the moment is Montepasca di Siena. 
the SSM has said this bank uh, does not have a shortfall in the baseline scenario. This bank has a shortfall in the adverse scenario. So this bank would be eligible for a precautionary recapitalization. Uh, so I, I just want to highlight that what has changed is that the balance between public and private contributions has changed. But I think it is important not to talk ourselves into a depression, so to speak. We're not, not, not that Matthias is doing that, huh? but there is still, uh, there is still uh, obviously, uh, a public piece uh, available. On this optimist note, I go to the floor. First question. I collect a few questions. Um, so yeah. okay, Matthias Levin, European Commission. Matthias mentioned uh, overcapacity in his uh, remarks. A question to the various panelists from your different perspectives. Consolidation, uh, how do you see the pros and cons of that at the current stage of, uh, of where we are? Is it safe to unleash another wave of consolidation at this stage in light of potential too big to fail concerns? Okay, and I would like to top on that not only domestic but also cross-border, that would be interesting. Uh, then. Uh, in the back there. Oh, first in the back. Sorry. And then Alex. Uh, Alexi Walkers, Belgian Competition Authority. Um, we have heard from Javier that uh, competition has undesirable effects uh, on stability. I think we all agree with that. And that's so less competition has less of these adverse effects uh, on stability. But less competition is also associated to rent-seeking. Uh, in particular, you know, you can think of high wages, high dividends, and you know a number of the things that were uh, explained uh, here. And I guess that uh, there is a fine line to be found. And um, if I can come back to the institutional design, uh, Mathias and uh, Jean Tirol have this excellent paper called Advocates, where basically they uh, argue quite convincingly that uh, there are costs to conflicting objectives. And so I wonder, you know, whether uh, putting uh, all this in the same institution is uh, the solution to the problem. Then one question here, and then we do answer, and we do a second round. Yeah, Alex. Uh, hello, uh, Alex Lehman from Bruegel. Uh, so I wondered uh, whether one of you could explain how the concept of the relevant market has changed over the years, given that really we have regulation at the EU and certainly at the SSM level, but we are still very much dealing with national banking markets where not only did we see very few cross-border mergers, uh, but we still have uh, quite a bit of this ring-fencing behavior by regulators that try to sort of um, protect and frustrate uh, the market integration, at least across the banking union. Okay. Michala, can I start with you? So mm -hmm. I think overcapacity can we have uh, domestic and also cross-border mergers, um, national banking markets. So can I make the question slightly bigger? When do you think, or in our lifetime, can you say I'm not a French bank but a euro area bank? I but, very much hope so. But, uh, I very much hope so. Unfortunately, I think it's the, the prospects are, are still quite long. And I think this is where the development of the Capital Markets Union is incredibly important. Um, Cross-border mergers need a, a, a rationale. It's like any company. You need to have a rationale in, in your merger. And if you cannot find the economies of scale in the merger, 
then there's no real strong business model for it. So I think this is where the, the capital markets union is absolutely key. Um, as I say, I, I wish for it to come into place tomorrow. So I'm, I'm ready to go ahead if we can have a capital markets union tomorrow. I think uh, it would be incredibly good news. And I think it's a very important point as well to appreciate that, uh, I'll come back to the competitive landscape, and to appreciate that the US banks have been gaining tremendous market share also into Europe. And one of the key crisis lessons, to my mind, is that when things go wrong, banks are asked to provide liquidity to their domestic companies first. I would like it to be European banks providing the credit and liquidity to our large uh, national, uh, our larger European corporations. So I think this is a is a very important point. So unfortunately, I think uh, we still have a bit of time ahead of us. Unless you tell me I'm wrong, and we're getting the capital markets union very very quickly. If I may, I just wanted to pick up on one point that uh, more capital is always good. I'm going to disagree. I think it's a balance. You know, you can have the banks overcapitalize as much as you want, and then they won't lend anything. It's it's that simple. So it's a, it's a balance between a certain level of capitalization to, for for safety and stability, but not so much capital that you actually stymie the economic growth. So I, I think there's a trade-off to be had. Can I turn to you on uh, on these mergers? On the yeah, um, my impression is that uh, what we will see, well, there is overcapacity in the sector, still too many branches, too many employees. My impression is that the sector, uh, the banking sector, uh, is in for a lot of pain in the future. Uh, that's my impression uh, because we'll have to restructure a lot, and in many countries uh, we'll have to reduce employment drastically. Um, and this will be painful. Um, and how do you uh, do that? Uh, my impression is that due to um, labor restrictions and, and, and national issues, most likely is to be done domestically. And so uh, if uh, consolidation uh, proceeds, it will proceed on this basis, which I am not sure it's this is not in a first best, not even a second best world, probably, but it will happen because it's a, a way to uh, a way to cut costs, okay? And maybe it's not the most efficient way, and obviously for market power issues it would be better cross-border mergers, uh, but then you need much more, as um, as you said. So so my impression is that we'll, uh, most likely will go in, in this way because of other restrictions. Do you need a merger, or can you do it bank by bank itself? Well, the the uh, the point is that I uh, I think in several countries I'm thinking of some countries, um, if you want to do a restructuring, if you do a merger, it helps. Yeah, yeah. So I see, for example, I'm from the Netherlands, and it, it should not in theory. Maybe, yeah. no? in theory you, you could yeah, do yeah. it uh, by yourself. The but, Netherlands but, is too too concentrated. Practice, three banks, so you cannot merge anymore. So there you see the big banks. Every week, another bank is in the news with more than 1,000 layoffs, and it continues for months. Yeah, exactly. But you were saying where there's more scope for concentration, their mergers can help domestic. Well, there is obviously there is some scope for economies of scale in terms of yeah. IT systems, uh, central services. I mean, obviously, and then uh, since the, the retail is completely segmented, there is no European retail market. Let's face it. So. Yeah. On the competition side. Uh, yeah, no, I, 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 I think that uh, what Xavier uh, 
has said is, is absolutely true. The, the sector is in for significant restructuring. I, I would also expect this largely to, to begin at a national level. Um, I mean, the, mark, this, the markets where this is most needed, coming back to the point about relevant markets, unfortunately, are markets which are where, where concentration levels are so low that I don't see any national merger problems. I don't think this will raise the type of consolidation and restructuring we're talking about now will not raise, raise EU merger, mer, merger issues in the first instance. But I also agree that we should move towards the second phase of this consolidation across borders uh, as, as, as quickly as possible because it's very suboptimal to, 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 to only look at the scale that is offered by a given member state, not least because the member states where the need for consolidation is greatest are also the member states which in terms of the misery index, uh, are, are not presenting the, the, the brightest picture. So we, we, we definitely have to move, uh, move ahead fast with, uh, with the, the integration at the European level, inter alia through capital union. Yeah. Before I call to Matthias, uh, I'm doing Rotterdam research with uh, a PhD student, and what we clearly find uh, is that by geographic diversification, also within Europe, you, uh, you don't see anything on the return, but you reduce the risk. There are really gains from cross-border mergers. Uh, but I agree the first thing is that we need to, to reduce the overcapacity. That's number one. Matthias. Yes, well, of course, Belgium is a, an example of a country where we have had, uh, uh, had uh, cross-border mergers. Uh, some doing well, some less well, you know. <laughs> Uh, but indeed, uh, two of our biggest banks uh, in Belgium are uh, well, ING and, uh, and BNP Paribas Fortis. Uh, I think one advantage, of course, of, uh, of cross-border merger is that they allow for some uh, geographic uh, diversification. And uh, indeed, I mean, we have talked a lot about, uh, from a financial stability point of view, the bank sovereign loop, the fact that uh, banks are... Uh, stuffed with uh, domestic sovereigns, uh, but it's more generally uh, a bank uh, national economy loop uh, because, uh, you know, uh, Italian banks have not suffered from a default of uh, the Italian sovereign, but they are suffering from the low growth, and if they are concentrated in, uh, in, uh, in Italy, then they are suffering. In Spain, I think it's a very good example for the value of cross-border banks in the crisis, uh, Santander and BBVA uh, survived the crisis because they were diversified, while a number of cajas, uh, it didn't work. So, and there, of course, uh, DG competition can help in, uh, in saying that, well, uh, cross-border mergers are typically not a concern in terms of uh, competition. And uh, so I think it, and with Banking Union, we will go a bit in, in that direction, but it's true that so far, we haven't seen much action. Um, and, uh, but I think it's something to, to encourage. And I think all the right incentives are there, competition, relevant market, and gradually the, um, the banking union, which should help also. Yeah, but still, let me just point out that this is not the US. In the US, they all speak English, and the law is exactly the same. So the, it's much more integrated market. So that we have different languages, cultures, legal systems, still differences. So, so no, it's, I am for it, eh? but, but the, the, the obstacles are there. But I think when, when the markets will go back in better shape, you will see more of it. I yeah, think, yeah. And, and by the way, uh, trade unions, especially for the reason you were mentioning, like in Belgium, they would hate it to have uh, domestic mergers because they know that in terms of uh, yeah. 
loss of jobs, it's much worse no, exactly. than yeah. having uh, cross-border mergers. So trade unions are also in favor of cross-border mergers. A second round of questions. My colleague, Reinilda. Yeah. So I understand that if we have better regulation, that would create more scope for competition policy, but that we still don't know how that better regulation agenda would actually look like. Uh, what do you propose for us so that we could learn more about how this better regulation would look like uh, here? Would you call for more evaluation of the existing regulations and see what works and what doesn't work and kill and, and change um, the, 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 the not functioning regulation, even if that would create a lot of uncertainty? Or would you even call for more uh, smart experimentation with new regulatory mixes here again? which create a lot of uncertainty, but at least we would learn better from uh, what this better regulation agenda would look like. And let, let me see whether there's any other question. Then regulation is so important, we start with it, so. Yeah, well, that, that, yeah, that's a difficult question, so how to improve regulation. Um, one issue which I think also has been mentioned before is that uh, good regulation typically is not complex regulation. So the regulations which are too complex, then they can be game. They, I mean, also in the US, for example, Dot Frank, you know, it's, you know, it's incredibly you know, uh, uh, complex, so we'll have uh, many implementation problems, so then there is a lot of discretion on, on the officials you know, how to implement it. So I, I think a big effort, uh, I think, should be done to streamline regulation on some basic things and not try, so for example, on, on capital. So maybe we have too many classes of capital. Maybe, maybe, you know, maybe we should simplify a little bit and then concentrate uh, on, on equity. On, on what's important, right? And maybe, I don't know, or maybe two, maybe, I don't know. But yeah. I'm just saying, you know, this in, in the uh, in push towards um, uh, simpler, uh, understandable um, um, regulations. So I, I think this is the most. Uh, uh, important thing, I, I would say. It's interesting, uh, Anil Kashnap from Chicago, together with Steve Tuketti, they, they have a new paper. They take the two capital ratios and the two liquidity ratios and show when is which one binding. And then they see quite a lot of contradictions between the four. And their overall conclusion is there is no integrated view when designing these regulations. Yeah, but this was one of my points. In exactly. Fact, in my exactly. It's one of exactly. my points that, that yeah. it has not been thought through. Exactly. Basically. So we impose all this, okay, but what this means exactly, you know, and then in, in, in what occasions. You know? Yeah. Before we go to the regulator, I go to exactly. <laughs> the one who's suffering. So, <laughs> well, I, I think your point about uncertainty is 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 very important, but it's it's a trade-off, right? Um, do we not fix some regulation which is too com cumbersome at the moment uh, because that creates uncertainty? Uh, I, I think you know everything in our discussion. We keep coming back to the balancing act, right? It's, I think it's really a balancing act for all the whole system. I, I do think it's important that that we think about everything around. You know, we we're focusing today on the competition and the regulation, but in our discussion, we've talked about banks holdings of sovereign bonds. That's quite a big question mark there. We've talked about uh, a lot about the capital markets union. We've talked about competition from outside of the euro area. So I think there are so many moving parts around that we shouldn't f 
forget these parts, which are all additional sources of uncertainty. And perhaps what we need to do is make a shopping list. You know, sometimes it's good to do what can I fix quickly and easily at a low cost and what will take longer to do, and maybe start by fixing some of the things that are relatively easy and low cost to, to get rid of and give uncertainty, uh, to, to give clarity and certainty on. And, and perhaps in that respect, I, I would say that the more clarity we can get on, on, a, on some of the new regulation which is being discussed quickly, I think that would be incredibly helpful for the sector. Sorry, I don't have a better answer on this. <laughs> um, on this issue of complexity, and of course I, I'm biased because I'm a regulator slash supervisor. I sit on the Basel Committee and the like, and, I, uh, and the Basel Committee is criticized a lot for uh, the complexity of its regulation. One thing we have to understand is that complexity is endogenous. It is uh, the result of a complicated political game uh, between, uh, so in Basel you have the supervisor and the central banks uh, being there, but then uh, this has to be uh, translated into law and the like, and so everybody's involved. Huh? And uh, frankly, uh, and at some point, I mean, faced with that, we set up uh, in Basel a task force on simplicity and comparability, of which I was uh, lucky enough to be on it and uh, see what is going on. By far, the best way to reduce the complexity of Basel is to get rid of internal models. Europe is dead against getting rid of internal models. And I'm sure Europe big banks in particular are very much against it. Now, and, and the name of the game is risk sensitivity. We love risk sensitivity, standardized uh, approach is one size fits all, leverage ratio is even worse, and the like and the like. So it is a complicated topic. I, I do think that uh, the, the complexity is there because it's the result of an equilibrium. And uh, you know, there, there is this book by Admati and Helvig saying 20% leverage ratio, and that's it. At some level, indeed, if banks play with their own money or their shareholders' money, they will do the right thing. But then you come back to the question, and I, I take the, your point, maybe that's too much. Uh, especially right now, the leverage ratio is 3%, plus possibly some uh, surcharge for really big banks. But so that's what we are talking about. And already people are saying, oh my God, lending to the economy, uh, it's, uh, Europe cannot afford that. So I think the debate is quite, uh, is quite uh, complicated. But uh, unfortunately, um, the fact that we also need to have a worldwide standard in Basel, and not even mentioning Donald Trump, who will of course be a game changer. Um, because uh, interestingly, after his election, the first sector to uh, to take advantage of it in terms of the share price was the banking sector. Huh? So level playing field uh, with respect to Europe and the like, I'm sure, will be debated. So, uh, but, but then um, the, the key question is, because clearly uh, if, we, if we paint it as a political game currently, then uh, the US took tough action and are on, on the good side. We are on the, 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 the worst side and now with our whole capital model. But how are we getting out of this equilibrium? Because uh, uh, I think you are already saying it, uh, US investment banks are taking over in, in Europe and we can clearly see it. And 
So if we keep on doing the show like this, then in the end, uh, um, and who is the voice in Europe who takes action? Uh, because is, is that the, the ECB, is that the Commission, or are it the national? So who, who who is best positioned? And maybe I can, should start with you as an independent outsider. Who, who should be the counterpart to the US? Because uh, if we think about this issue, should it be in Brussels, in Frankfurt, or the national? Uh, in the end, the national supervisors are the key uh, players in Basel, rather than the ECB or the Commission. That's, um, I mean, that's a, uh, yeah, a very tough European question because, yeah, uh, who, uh, who what for no, no, exactly, yeah. that was the question. No, who do I have to call if there is a problem? No? Uh, there are too many, yeah, there are too many people. Um, uh, I guess the, well, the, the, the natural counterparts of the European, of the US authorities would be um, the ones we have here. So if it is the Federal Reserve, no, should be the ECB, no, if it is, and all the regulators, the, in this case, the single uh, regulatory uh, mechanism, no? uh, for example. Um, but the, the problem is that Europe is uh, also politically so complicated no? uh, that, um, that there is no single phone. So probably they will call first Germany, maybe, you know, to see what you think, and then, no? so, so it's that the usual game, I think, in, uh, in France or the French banks or whoever, or whatever, no? I mean, so it's, a, uh, it's the, uh, the usual uh, game in Europe until we either advance towards more integration or towards disintegration, no? which I, I'm not sure which way it will go, in fact. And from the market, who would you like to take the initiative? Well, I think at the end of the day, it has to be at the political level because a lot of the things we're talking about is progressing on the institutions in Europe and, and, and not so much uh, the actual regulation itself, but much more about the institutions in the first instance. So to me, it has to be the politics. I think the reality is, though, that we're facing an incredibly busy electoral agenda in Europe. We have elections in France in Germany, and then probably in Italy sometime in early 2018. And, and that means that realistically, it's only once we're beyond these big election dates that I think we're going to be able to, to advance. And I think this is really the, the, the challenge, but I think it has to come from a political level. So you were asking me who I'm thinking of, right? When I was young, which is a long time ago, I grant you, but you know the, the, the key picture on Europe, right? I'm sure many of you remember it. It's a picture where Mitterrand and, and Kohl are holding hands, right? It's sort of the symbolic picture of the Euro, if you think about it. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I guess what I need is I, I need at least a French and a German political leader to stand and hold hands in a nice picture, and preferably maybe with an Italian and a Spanish one as well. And when I have that picture, I'll be convinced. That's an yeah. interesting <laughs> political... Let's eye. hope that the outcome of the elections uh, goes into a reasonable direction. It's the right people hold hands. hands. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, can I on that note ask whether it's a final question, otherwise uh, uh, we close? But then we close uh, on the, um, and I think in that end, it is really a nice closing word from you, that in the end, uh, it is politics, and we all knew that. Uh, I do it always with my students. They are already advanced to the master level, and then I ask uh, regulation, what is it about? And they first start with economics, finance, and then the smart ones, things, okay, law. But nobody knows, and I say it's 80, 90% of this politics. 
and I think you are reconfirming uh, that point, that regulation is about uh, politics, and I think that comes back also to your other point, that if we want to make progress uh, also after Brexit, that we really need to think about capital markets union and make progress there, rather than uh, stay divided. And in the end, I think that's a key issue. And uh, uh, before I thank my colleagues, I think one lesson I also learned is that you really need an integrated view. And I think both on regulation itself and in the interaction from competition, and that it is very difficult or even wrong if you look at the issues from an uh, isolated point of view because then you miss the other, uh, the other dimension. It is the interaction which makes it uh, difficult. And let me first thank uh, the speaker and congratulate you with a nice book. And I have to tell you, uh, at the entrance, you will see the leaflet for uh, buying the book if you don't have it already. Uh, <laughs> thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you very much. And I would also like uh, to thank the two discussions and Gertjan as well for a very lively discussion. And I think we managed a very different point of view. Thank you all for coming. Thanks. Thank you.